Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. Whether you're in business, issue-based campaigns, or an organisation driving change in your community, Dunstreet develops strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organises them to achieve the common goals from the ground up. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Hello, and welcome to Socially Democratic, uh, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that will dive into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. On this week's episode, I was joined by US communications strategist Ben LeBolt. Uh, For over a decade, Ben has served as a communications strategist on campaigns at the city, state, and national level on Capitol Hill and in the Obama White House and was the national press secretary for President Obama's re-election campaign back in 2012. Uh, Ben spoke about his time uh, in the White House uh, and working for then-Senator Barack Obama and then eventually President Obama, and we got his thoughts on the Democratic primary race at the moment, and we had a longer conversation about what centre-left or social democratic parties must do to ensure success at election time, and his observations were even more relevant following the appalling performance uh, by Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party in the UK at last week's general elections in Britain. Uh, I will point out this this, uh, episode actually was recorded a couple of days before the election, uh, but uh, his thoughts are just as relevant then as uh, it is now. And also just a bit of a special thanks uh, to a couple of organisations. This episode is actually recorded in conjunction with both the Chifley Research Centre and Australian Labor International, who did a lot of the work to get uh, Ben out to Australia the other week for the uh, Chifley Research Centre's uh, policy conference in Sydney uh, towards 2022. Uh, and it should also mention uh, the Chifley Research Centre is the official policy think tank for the Australian Labor Party. And you um, you can obviously attend any of their events that they organise, but also you can donate. Um, they always need small dollar donations to help do the good work that they do, which is to help develop policy um, for the Labor Party uh, right across the country. So if you uh, want to, you know, just give them five bucks or 10 bucks or maybe a hundred bucks, no, it's up to you. Uh, jump on the website, just Google Chifley Research Centre and uh, and throw them a donation and give them a hand because they do great work. Uh, we have one more episode to go before the year finishes up. Next week, we have one of my favourite politicians and a great Labor person, the member for the Eastern Region in the Victorian State Parliament, Harriet Shing, will be joining us to wrap up 2009, so that should be fun. I'm looking forward to doing that. And then we're going to have a little bit of a break before we get back into 2022 and the episodes for another year. Um, The podcast, obviously, is always available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And remember, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and leave a review. Um, And um, if you use it or listen to the podcast on whatever podcast app you use, please make sure you subscribe so you get the most recent episodes of Socially Democratic on your listening device. And for updates, make sure you follow Dunn Street. Uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to this week's episode. 
Okay, we're taking this one on a Monday in uh, downtown Melbourne, back in my home state. And on today's episode, we are joined by the former press secretary and White House spokesperson during the Obama administration and now partner at uh, Bully Pitt Interactive, which is a Democratic uh, comms agency. Ben LeBolt, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thanks for having me. Great to be in Melbourne. Uh, is this your first time in Melbourne? It's my second, uh, and uh, I'm excited to explore it again. I remember the coffee culture and, and how incredibly vibrant the, the city was, so hoping to get out there uh, when it's uh, a little bit less warm, it's a bit It's a bit stinky hot today. <laughs> it is. The city smells like a really disgusting fart at the moment. It's quite warm. <laughs> uh, you were in Sydney over the weekend for the Chifley Conference towards 2022, um, impressions, comparisons between Melbourne and Sydney, and I have to warn you, don't fuck this up, Ben. <laughs> I'm sure it's uh, it's quite a contentious conversation in, in the country. I, I think of Sydney, look, Sydney is absolutely beautiful. Uh, I think about it, people never like their cities compared, but for an American, uh, you come into the city and it feels like the city of London dropped into the topography of Los Angeles with the beautiful beaches and 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 people and and places. Uh, Melbourne for me feels a little bit more like uh, New York. It's it's arts, it's culture, it's it's interesting architecture. Um, so uh, you kind of need both, uh, and I'm glad that I'm getting to both on this trip. Very diplomatically put. That's good. You're doing well. You've passed so far. We can continue this interview now. Um, you're out here, obviously, uh, doing a number of uh, presentations and speeches and meeting folks uh, from uh, the socially, social democratic side of politics. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about some of the things you've been talking about over the last couple of days. But before we do, uh, I think it's useful for our listeners to get a bit of a sense of who you are and how you got involved in democratic politics in the United States. So where do you hail from and where did, where did it, what's the story of self for Ben? Story of self, the origin story. Uh, so, uh, you know, I grew up outside of the city of uh, Chicago, which is sort of a, a legendary political city in the United States. Uh, you know, I grew up while Mayor Daley, uh, the younger one, was mayor for 29 years, and his father was mayor for about that long uh, before him. So uh, they call Chicago the city that works, uh, and politics really mattered. The mayor was on the front page of the paper four or five times a day uh, for everything from big ideas and big thinking to making sure that your trash got picked up and then the snow got plowed. And so uh, it's sort of in your blood when you grow up uh, around a city like that, although I think it's a lot uh, more small-D democratic these days yep. uh, than it was back then. Uh, I went to uh, to college uh, on the East Coast uh, while uh, in the state of Vermont while Governor Howard Dean uh, was the governor there. He then ran for president uh, in, in 2004. Uh, sort of an insurgent uh, challenger uh, campaign and, and barely lost the nomination uh, for president. But I started the old-fashioned way, uh, getting paid to knock on doors, which I'm not sure my parents were overly excited about <laughs> after uh, paying for my college uh, education. Uh, but it was a great experience talking to voters, uh, learning the very tactile art uh, of of persuasion and how you win campaigns on the ground, and then spent uh, my uh, formative years uh, doing political communications for uh, for President Obama, uh, starting when he was a senator, uh, for uh, members of Congress uh, from the industrial Midwest, which gave me very good perspective uh, on a lot of challenges uh, that now the entire country uh, is uh, is facing. 
you mentioned Senator Obama. So you've obviously bought stocks um, in the Obama company early. Um, how did you come across uh, this guy with a unique name? You know, I, the Democratic convention um, often showcases when we're nominating uh, our next presidential candidate um, an emerging voice uh, within the party. Uh, and in 2004, uh, John Kerry uh, selected uh, a, a state senator from uh, Illinois that not many people had heard of, but uh, who opposed the Iraq War, um, who wrote an incredibly compelling book about his life story um, that linked a lot to uh, the, the sense of identity in the United States. Um, and uh, I worked for a member of Congress from Chicago, and so he was on my radar screen earlier than others. But I thought he represented uh, a new type of politics. Um, some people thought uh, it was a post-partisan uh, vision mm. uh, at the time. Uh, that turned out uh, not to be true when uh, the Republican Party uh, after he was elected, decided uh, that they would try to uh, stop every piece of legislation he tried to pass mm. uh, for eight years instead of engaging to to shape policy. Um, but I, I knew that he had uh, both the political skills, the pragmatic vision, um, and the cultural resonance to be a different kind of leader that got new people involved in politics for the first time. And I really wanted to be a part of that. What were you doing for him at the start when you, uh, when you went into his senatorial office? Um, so I was the spokesman in uh, his Senate office um, shortly before uh, he announced that he was running uh, for president. So my job was really to answer the mail uh, for uh, his, his home state with, with the press corps to, show, uh, to showcase all of the work he was doing uh, in the Senate from you know, transparency in the government to helping veterans um, and deal with a pretty aggressive press corps uh, in Chicago. You know, our, our, our regional press corps are, are typically the toughest uh, on presidential candidates who are local because they know them so well and also yeah. want to feel like they're doing the most investigative work on them. So, uh, you know, I was doing work at that time to, to really shape his biography f for the country through the home state press corps. Thinking about uh, you working on the Obama campaign as he announces and going through the the, the, pri the early stages of the primary campaign, um, and where you know we're recording this in um, early December, um, we're probably less than a month now from the first uh, caucus in Iowa. Um, if you reflect back to this time in two thousand and seven, um, was there a moment where you thought? Um, okay, we're a, we're a reasonably good chance. How did you feel around about you know mid December about Obama's chances going to that first primary in uh, in Iowa? Well, by December uh, we were feeling a lot better about uh, Senator Obama's chances in the Iowa caucuses, and I think you know the one thing our primary system does is it allows candidates that are not the establishment candidate to kind of hunker down. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the early states, get to know voters, have the voters kick the tires and decide they might want to take a chance on somebody who's, you know, not the best finance candidate or not the best known candidate. And so while Hillary Clinton had national name ID and, and support across the country, particularly from the political establishment, 
our strategy was to get Obama to Iowa and have him spend as much time in those 99 counties, talking to the local press, talking to voters and others. Um, We had a dark um, period um, as recently as September, October of that year, uh, when he was getting hammered in the national polls and the Iowa numbers hadn't started to pick up enough. Um, But by December, um, polls started showing that he might be in a position to win the Iowa caucuses. And there were a couple that had him on top. Um, This time around, Iowa's a month later, uh, as is New Hampshire. And we've had multiple frontrunners. You know, we've had Biden on top. We've had Warren on top. uh, Now Mayor Pete of South Bend, Indiana, is on top of the polls in Iowa. Um, So there could be another change by the time we get to February. We'll see. So is it a bit of a – is it like – because of the stacked field this time around, it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges. Is it hard for you to sort of think about your experiences back in 2007 and look at the current candidates and say, right, they kind of have the field? That- you know, I, I think it was a stacked field back then, too. I mean, we had Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards. You know, we had some big names running for office and it was highly competitive. And we do this time around as well. I think the phenomenon we've seen this time around that kind of eventually felt like a bipolar contest between Obama and Clinton. Um, this feels like it's multipolar. And the trend that we're experiencing is whoever becomes the front runner for that week or that month then has 12 other candidates attacking them mm-hmm. every day, and they tend to get taken down a notch. And so emerging at exactly the right time might be the formula to win this time around. And timing is everything, which is not something you can control, which is such a frustrating thing from a campaign perspective. It's, you always want to operate on the things that you can control and things you can't. Well, you're just going to have to just let that happen. But that's something you definitely cannot control is the timing. That's right. I mean, we create these you know beautiful calendars of message events and every announcement we're going to do for the next six months. And... You know, those are overtaken by events almost every time. I've never wanted that to be my job on the campaign because I know how futile it is. Um, I was going to ask you a bunch of questions about the primaries, but we seem to have slipped into it now. We'll go back to the other stuff a little bit later on. So while we're here, were you surprised? What, What has surprised you the most thus far in this primary campaign? It's been very hard to predict. I think it's the hardest one to predict of my lifetime. Um, I entered the race thinking that Senator Kamala Harris of California had a very good shot at being the nominee as much as anybody else did. And I would have never predicted that she would have run out of money and dropped out of the race yeah, by right. this point in the that, campaign. You yeah. know, she I thought she had a unique ability to put together the Obama coalition again. She um, has been incredibly articulate in the Judiciary Committee hearings, holding Trump nominees accountable, holding Uh, his Supreme Court appointees accountable during that process. She had a great and well-planned announcement. But the campaign um, ended up having four or five messages and uh, four or five health care plans, and it ended up just feeling a little bit disorganized. Um, And ultimately, that's why campaigns matter and primary nomination processes matter. We need to have a Hmm. nominee who um, really has the endurance to make it through the general election, which is going to be very tough. So who do you think has the, the endurance to, to make it through based on what we're seeing right right now? I, you know, I think that there are four candidates who could potentially be the nominee. Uh, those candidates are Warren, Sanders, uh, Mayor Pete, and Joe Biden. 
Um, you know, I, I, I think all of them have shown by keeping their numbers as high as they have at this point in the race um, that they could have the endurance to make it through um, the general election. Um, I'm somebody who wants to see uh, generational change within the party. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we've tended to elect Democratic presidents when they've been younger, at least in recent history. If you think about JFK, if you think about Obama, if you think about Clinton. And part of it is that cultural resonance I was talking about earlier, how not only do they need a crisp message, um, but they have to communicate uh, like Americans communicate today and reach them um, where uh, they receive their information. And that today is, you know, on their mobile phones. It's not necessarily um, the news networks and some of the traditional forms of political communication uh, that we've had in recent years. And I think we need to reach persuadable voters that moved from Obama to Trump. There's no doubt about that. But one of the reasons Hillary lost um, is because turnout among millennials and diverse communities was soft. She didn't get to Obama's numbers, and there's been much less attention on that than there has uh, the the flip of certain segments of the white working class population. The white working class in the U.S. Um, has actually tended to vote Republican since Ronald Reagan. Um, so we lost the majority of those voters a while back. We don't want percentages to slip any further, um, but I I. I think we need a candidate who can both uh, reach a good proportion of them and motivate uh, these uh, these other parts of the electorate. Those uh, those millennials that you speak of. I mean, obviously, we were. I was in New York. Was I? Yeah, I was. I was in Brooklyn on the night of the election, and I think we were all stunned to see that that sort of that blue wall that we spoke of. I don't know if they even called it a blue wall before then, but maybe they did. Uh, just fall. Uh, on election night, are is are those millennials important to those battleground states of uh, um, Michigan and, and Wisconsin, um, or is it or is it, are we looking for new voters in other areas? Someone made a point to me when I was over in the states just recently that I don't know why we're bothering going after Ohio when we lost Ohio by more votes than we lost Georgia. Georgia's a state that needs to come onto the map and a state that we need to really double down strongly as opposed to thinking about trying to pick up Ohio. What are your thoughts on? Well, I don't know that Ohio will be a targeted state this time around. I mean, the only Democrat to win statewide elected office there uh, in uh, the past several years is my old boss, Sherrod Brown. Um, That's looking tough on the Mm. presidential map. The map may be slightly different this time around. I think that those blue wall states of Pennsylvania, of Michigan, of Wisconsin, they will remain at the top of the list. I think they are winnable. That's a combination of the folks you were talking about, the millennials um, in uh, in cities and suburbs. Uh, but they've also got a good proportion of, uh, you know, blue-collar voters who were open to voting for President Obama, and I think we can win them back. Part of it is because of um, Trump's trade war with, with China. Mm-hmm. Um, farmers and manufacturers and others um, that had been hardcore Trump supporters have really been hammered um, on that issue. But I think the map... Uh, We'll change to take a look at, uh, we'll see if Georgia's on it. Uh, I think at least North Carolina will be. And we're also seeing uh, Arizona as a competitive state this time around. Uh, We always thought there'd be a year when it got competitive. It is now. Um, I know that polling is showing at least a couple of the Democratic candidates beating President Trump in that state. If you track 
the spending of outside progressive groups that are going after Trump. Mm. They're starting to spend pretty heavily in Arizona, and that's always a good leading indicator of whether or not the campaign will target it. Let's turn to the topic that uh, you've been speaking a lot on over the last couple of days. You're probably sick sick to death of speaking about it, but I'm just going to do it one more time um, for our uh, listeners that uh, didn't get a chance to get get up to Sydney. You wrote a piece in The the Guardian uh, uh, last week which was talking broadly about uh, social democratic parties and the challenges that we are facing in a, in a modern world with globalisation. You draw some uh, really interesting comparisons between what's going on in the United States and what's going on in here, uh, in Australia, off the back of the surprise 2016 election for Trump and then obviously the surprise uh, election uh, in 2019 this year for, for where Labor didn't win, where we were uh, hoping to, or certainly the front runners to do so, very similar to Hillary. Um, and you outlined some of the things, you sort of talked about some of the problems that are happening right now in Australia and the United States and then outlined uh, for the left to win again, it must do at least three things you, you, that, you, that you've listed. I wonder if you can sort of run through those three things and then maybe we can have a bit of a chat about each of those three things and unpack them about how, uh, give us examples where you think it has worked in the United States um, and what we need to do in the future. Absolutely. So, you know, the trends, I think, that have been impacting us globally and helping to lead to the rise of the far right to power, not only here uh, and not only in the United States, but in Brazil and in Hungary and in many other countries, um, are globalization and automation. Um, Some people have benefited from them, um, but a decent amount of people have not. And it's led to uh, a a historic rate of income inequality um, and perpetual economic anxiety that's leading to a shock election after a shock election. Uh, the, the constant feeling that we want to throw the bums out mm-hmm. and that the, the population is, is raging against the machine. Um, Democrats in 2016 um, didn't really outline a vision that addressed those core economic anxieties. Uh, Donald Trump ran on that anxiety um, and uh, ran on fear and and said he was the strong man who would protect you uh, from those things. We responded with our message, which was stronger together, which the implication was Donald Trump is a divisive figure. Um, but we took our usual list of policies from a half dozen or a dozen constituency groups and rolled out white papers on 100 different issues, and that didn't allow one message to break through. Um, And that wasn't an effective strategy. Uh, We've made some progress in 2018 in the midterm elections. We really just ran on health care and said that Donald Trump and the Republicans are eroding your health care. They're in the process of kicking millions of people off the rolls. For others, they're eroding their existing coverage. Um, Don't vote for them. Um, if you want a stable health care program. Um, and that was a much more effective uh, message. But in a presidential election, we need a proactive vision, too. Um, so first, um, I think we need to be absolutely crisp about our message. It's got to be simple and repeatable. Um, and it's got to speak to those economic anxieties that people are experiencing. We can't just say we're for free college We have to tell people what we're educating to help them do Mm. and what jobs will be available. Not everybody's going to learn how to to code. Mm. You know, if you were working in a coal mine uh, five years ago and and you're 50 years old, 
you might not be able to go back to school to learn how to code. And so we need an inclusive vision um, for, for all Americans um, that tells them um, how we will secure their economic future, um, acknowledging um, globalization and automation as trends uh, that are likely to uh, continue. Um, secondly, I think we need to expose the populism that's coming from the right as being fraudulent. Um, you know, Donald Trump, uh, and I believe Morrison too, um, has created, uh, you know, this foil uh, that uh, there are these elites out there um, that are coming for your job because uh, they have created these trends of globalization and automation. And Trump is really leaning into immigration, too, to say that immigrants are taking your jobs away. Um, but both of them have stacked their cabinets um, with people very close to the financial services industry. They're completely anti-regulation. They're completely anti-consumer. Um, the only piece of legislation Donald Trump has passed through Congress uh, is a corporate tax cut that actually raised taxes on many individuals. Um, and so the notion that he is a populist or can carry that mantle is an absolute lie, uh, and we need to expose it as a fraud. Um, and thirdly, we need to run uh, modern campaigns that reach people where they are and deal with some of the current communications challenges uh, we're facing. Um, so, of course, that means... Um, reaching people on their mobile phones in real time, um, creating great creative that's viral, that's shareable. Uh, but it also means dealing with things like the threats of misinformation in a new way. So when I was running presidential campaign communication shops, we had a rapid response team that would monitor what the opposition was saying, and we'd put out statements and tweets to respond to them in real time. That's not going to be enough this time mm. around because we're not only competing against the opposition, but we're competing against, uh, you know, these Trump groups that are that are hiding within Reddit, you know, spreading misinformation. And we've already got foreign governments like the Russians and the Iranians who have created content and tried to interfere in the U.S. election. That's still a year away. Um, and so we've got to have sophisticated social listening. Um, that takes a look at the content warfare that's out there every day. We've got to be able to respond in real time um, and respond through multimedia. You know, when a when our opponent airs a television attack ad against us, we respond. And we don't repeat the attack. We respond in a compelling way. We need to do that on digital this time around. Um, and look, if it's coming from a foreign government or somebody who um, shouldn't be involved in this at all. We need to contact law enforcement and the tech platforms and use our legal muster and all these other sorts of tools. So it's got to be a much more staffed up, sophisticated effort than it has been in the past. Let's uh, unpack some of that and go backwards. Uh, so one of the com conversations that dominated uh, the conference on the weekend was Facebook. Uh, Anthony Albanese, the leader of the Labor Party, made a headline speech on the Saturday calling out Facebook and saying that there needs to be more regulation against social media platforms. Um, is there, um, do, you know, what kind of world do you foresee in the future where that is going to happen? I mean, it, it, Facebook is, and all the social media platforms are these, these diverse multimedia, mass media organisations that have literally popped up 
you know, in the grand scheme of things in the last 20 minutes. Um, and it's taken us all the while to sort of grapple with it and use it. And, you know, as a campaigner, even trying to use Facebook to campaign to constituents, every election cycle, they keep on changing the rules internally within Facebook. So, you know, 10 years ago, you could scrape the back end of Campaign Central and match it against the role and have everyone's telephone numbers. That doesn't apply anymore because they've changed, you know. So you're constantly trying to adapt is this is is one of those major solutions regulation at a government level um, nation by nation to say to Facebook right this is how you're going to engage with our, our our with businesses and with constituents in a general sense do you foresee that actually happening like is Zuckerberg listening to this sort of stuff I I do think that the tech platforms will be regulated at some level um, I I think that is highly likely um, you know the question is at what level and. The other question is, what is being regulated? Is it the size of the company? Is it the content itself? And if it's the content, who should be regulating that? I mean, I I think Facebook's argument is strong that um, they shouldn't be the arbiters for the country of what content is fair and not fair and what content is accurate and inaccurate. And they are putting, you know, fact-checking marks next to some of the non-advertising content. Uh, but if it's not them, is it a government entity? Mm. And, you know, in the U.S. at least, I think there'd be concern about if it's a government entity that's regulating the content, how do you ensure that it's nonpartisan? And how do you ensure that it's nonpartisan if somebody like Donald Trump is president who's yeah. politicizing the Justice Department? So, it, you know, it's a complicated question. I think some level of regulation will likely be achieved but i also don't think any of that is likely to happen before the next election so i really think it's on um it's on the democratic campaigns to build infrastructure that allows us to firefight in real time and mm. deal with the reality before us today do you foresee a bipartisan approach from congress on this issue you know it's um it, it's possible um you know i think you've you've seen a democratic senator like uh, Mark Warner um, work with the numbers on the right. The, the issue is they have different concerns. So the right's concern is over what they view as censorship. You know, they they think that if there's strict controls um, that the platforms implement, that voices on the right um, will be censored. Mm-hmm. Uh, the left is more concerned about misinformation and election interference. So. Um, you know, look, if the Democrats make big gains in the elections, um, maintain the House and, and the Senate is at least very tight, um, there might be some some bipartisan work done on this issue. But they're approaching it from completely different angles. Then moving into the sort of the more campaign space, um, you said that, you know, we need to run more mo- uh, modern integrated campaigns that reach voters where they consume their information. Um Tell me, do you think this is an accurate reflection of the the strengths of the Democratic and Republican campaigns over over the last, well, going back to um, the Bush-Kerry election? I think I remember a documentary that I um, have watched on, on a number of occasions and off, often going into a campaign, I will re-watch it to remind myself about how the left can get things wrong. Um, so goes the nation, which was based on the uh, Bush-Kerry campaign mm-hmm. focused on Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The takeaway from that was a lot of things you spoke about before. The the Republic of the Bush campaign had a very uh, simple, clear message. 
Um, the Kerry uh, campaign had a lot of messages to a lot of people. Um, it also talked about um, the Republican field game or their ground game was quite strong um, compared to the Democrats. Fast forward to 2008, it seems to have flipped the other way around. And then 2012 as well, it was a reputation... Uh, sorry, it was, a, it was, a, um, um, it was a, an amazing achievement for Obama to double down um, in, you know, four years later and to get the electorate to return him again. I thought that was... I think a lot of people think about the 08 campaign as being amazing. I've always felt 2012 was the one that was actually an incredibly good, strong campaign against a really strong Republican campaign. Then to 2016, a lot of people have said that the Republicans either caught up and then passed the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I did do a bit of a campaign in 2016 and you sort of, you know, a lot of friends that worked in different parts of the campaign. Do you think that's... Is that a fair reflection... Look, I mean, I, I think the Democrats, you know, ran, uh, had built on the 2012 playbook and had all the sophisticated tools at their disposal that the Republicans did. I think uh, there are a couple of key differences. One is that um, Facebook had offered, you know, embeds um, to the various campaigns um, that had a good understanding of the platform. The Clinton campaign said, no, we don't want somebody from the company embedded at our headquarters. And the Republicans said, Yes. So there's been, um, you know, there's been some reflection um, on that. Um, I think, too, that Democrats are trying to catch up um, both by building on the institutional knowledge that we have and also making investments, seed investments in dozens uh, of new tech platforms um, that will uh, launch prior to the next election. There was a lot of testing done in 2018 with those tools, um, everything from analytics to organizing. Um, And we'll see if any of those um, help us succeed. There's a lot of generous Democratic donors in Silicon Valley and elsewhere that are uh, investing in that tech. But I think the thing to really watch for is the, the advertising rules of the platforms are changing in real time and how you can target voters is changing in real time. And, you know, Twitter banned political advertising, um, for example. So, um, you know, it's a responsibility of firms like mine to take a look at how you can still find persuadable voters and reach them um, with the information that um, will move them to vote um, for our candidate. Um, And we've got to have we've got to modernize all of our tools to be ready for that. Um, I think we have. uh, But that's the question of the cycle. And I think. In retrospect, you know, a lot of Democrats have pushed hard for significant restrictions on political advertising um, digitally. Um, But I don't think you'd have Barack Obama or AOC or some others if we didn't have those digital tools to reach people and tell them about our insurgent candidates. I think it might benefit incumbents if you start to take all of these tools away. So um, the companies really have to strike the right balance. And then to the second point that you mentioned, you were talking about um, provide a vision on how we'll address the challenges of globalization in a way that supports the average family. Easier said than done. Do you see uh, some successes um, with that? You spoke about healthcare for the midterms um, leading into the 2020 presidential and watching the way the candidates are approaching um, their primary campaigns. Is there someone or are there candidates that stand out that you think they are talking about 
no, and I hate the hell we're having the conversation. I actually want to see, I think as if a voter, I want to see actual solutions. I don't want you to have the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there someone do you, that you're noticing amongst the democratic field that you're going, oh, okay, I think they're actually, they've got a good ear for the average voter? You know, I'd, I'd been critical of uh, the democratic debate over education until the past couple of weeks because it had been entirely focused on uh, free college and what is the what's the income bracket and means test to access uh, free college and I believe everybody should have a college education uh, if they want to pursue it. Uh, the problem with that is we've been having that debate for two three election cycles and we never said should we take a look at the curriculum <laughs> should yeah. we give people a better sense of what good paying jobs are going to be available um, for them for their kids. Uh, what types of training alternatives are available if a four-year college program is not right for them? Um, you know, Mayor Pete uh, rolled out um, some some substantive thoughts on the curriculum this week, what we should be training people to do. Uh, you know, when I was a kid and we went to school, um, you know, and, and studied social studies, we spent all of our time memorizing the state capitals. They still do that today. Mm. Um, and I just think of, uh, sort of how irrelevant that is um, when we could educate people about the challenges in the world, um, the skills they could build um, to get a great job, um, to be a strategic thinker um, and and compete in the knowledge economy if they go that route. There's a ton more we could be doing. Um, you know, I was on the board of a, a school that taught uh, underprivileged kids K through 12 how to code mm. as just one of their, you know, six to nine classes during the day. Um, and they had a hundred percent success rate of sending those kids to four-year colleges. So we really need to be more innovative and more forward looking. Um, and I think we can, and I think we need to roll out a new vision for trade too. Um, you know, it's sort of been pro free trade or anti free trade. Um, and, uh, you know, we turned against the Trans-Pacific Partnership during the 2016 election um, after some political pressure from the left, uh, but never came back and said, uh, okay, this is a very competitive century. Um, China really is on the rise mm-hmm. and going country by country and trying to strike up economic relationships. So what what's our progressive vision for how to deal with that? Um, what does it mean for job creation at home? You know, where are exports benefiting us and what, what does that policy look like? Um, we can answer all these sorts of questions, but I think we tend to rely on the easy answers, which is, um, you know, oh, you'll be fine with just a high school education um, or, or, oh, you know, we'll get manufacturing to come back to your town. Um, and we've been saying that for years um, and, it, and it hasn't resulted in great outcomes. And I think we have to be more innovative. Um, the final question uh, before we uh, let you go, um, you've spent uh, a couple of days here now um, in Australia and speaking to a lot of people from um, the, the centre-left, so you know people who work for the Australian Labor Party and the trade union movement. Um, anything that struck you in terms of lessons that you can take home back to the United States that you found to be um, useful? Well, the first thing I noticed was we have a lot of shared challenges. I think there was a sense here in Australia that after the last election, a lot of progressive organizations thought that labor had the election in the bag. And so, you know, instead of figuring out how helpful they could be in delivering the election for labor, 
they came with a list of 10 demands, you know, for labor to sign off on in, in the policy platform. Um, and that didn't allow for a clear message um, to break through. Um, it's clear that uh, Morrison used uh, his personal charisma um, and a multimedia effort um, to reach people um, in showing that uh, he would be a strong leader. Um, you had the shared challenge of a bunch of outside spending uh, to define uh, shorten, um, and that's something we're definitely going to face against the Democratic uh, candidate. Um, and so, I, you know, I learned several things that I think will be helpful um, in going back home. Um, number one, I mean, I, I think there's been a lot of attention on on Queensland here and um, how you talk to uh, working class voters who had stable jobs before, relied on labor before, um, but flipped to the coalition here this time around because they felt more economically secure with them. Um, I think there's the sense that, uh, you know, my gut that we really needed this forward looking economic vision, I think, is is reinforced um, with that lesson. I think, secondly, um, you know, talking to folks here, um, you do have strong party organizations where people feel deeply committed and involved and like they have a say in how the parties run. Um, you know, the Democratic Party itself is kind of a non-existent institution in the United States. We ask people to vote every two years, but it's really a turnout operation. So um, are there things we can ask um, Democrats to do or to get people involved in the party between elections um, that keeps them engaged more consistently? Um, I think that's another thing that, um, that I'll take home. I think that's something that you guys actually do better than us, though. It's from my in my old job as um, as someone who was um, directing field organisers. We um, looked to um, some of the methods, for example, that um, uh, uh, OFA, uh, Obama for America, or organising fraction were doing during you know your time when you were in the White House, and how you could link your legislative agenda and then try and mobilise. Uh, people in communities to put pressure on congressmen, congresspeople uh, to vote the right way. It's something that we've started to try and do, certainly here in the great state of Victoria. Um, but, um, um, you know, we have a long way to go and we need to get better at that. Um, but certainly the, one of the biggest takeaways that I've had in my time working in the labour movement is whenever I've travelled around the globe and met with other people from social democratic parties, everyone has great ideas. And we need to get together more often. You know, that best practice sharing thing is such a powerful weapon for all of us on the left. I, I think that's right. You know, for the first time in my life after Trump was elected, um, people on the left around the world were just reaching out to me through uh, Facebook to say, hey, we had a surprise loss or things feel like they're drifting right. Um, can we talk more? Can mm. we share can we share lessons? There's there's really no one forum for that, uh, but I completely agree that we could learn so much from each other. And um, you know, on on issues like climate and other things, it's it's not that we shouldn't just organize around that issue itself, but um, share our best tactics for how to run uh, these modern winning campaigns. We have a long way to go. We wish you the best of luck next year going into the presidential election. And uh, thanks very much for your time coming on the podcast to talk to us today. Thanks for having me.